I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Sarah Bow. I'm going to pronounce this right, Bowl You. She's an author, speaker, and co-founder of The Uncomfortable Conversation. Her new book is Breaking the Silence Habit, a practical guide to uncomfortable conversations in the Me Too workplace. Despite the progress that's been made with the Me Too movement, the recent Victoria's Secret expose reveals a harsh truth. In a culture where power is abused, corporate uncertainty and silence about this modern epidemic creates wary employees who don't bring their full talents to work. And when people are afraid to ask questions and learn new behaviors, efforts to prevent sexual harassment will backfire. Sarah offers a framework for leaders, managers, and employees who want their workplaces to feel safer and less volatile for everyone. Her work has been featured in multiple news outlets, Harvard Business Review, the Associated Press, U.S. Chamber of Commerce, NPR, and many more. Uh, Welcome to to the show, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Okay, Excited so to be here and talk about uncomfortable conversations. I was going to say this is an uncomfortable conversation, right? So, one of the things though you do say, I'll just uh, just one additional thing you say that like if there's a problem in the workplace or if we have problems like health problems, if 25% of your workers suffered from diabetes for instance, there would be a response to that, management prevention, that would be a big theme and it would hopefully help the bottom line. But when it comes to This uncomfortable conversation, we don't seem to be managing it very well. So, what do we do? Well, I think I think the first thing we have to do is 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 see the see the issue a little bit differently and talk about it in a different way. So, I think when we talk about sexual harassment in a workplace context, we typically think about it through the lens of defining the rules so that incidents of sexual harassment don't take place at work. And, and while that's certainly important, part of what we also need to do is to give people the skills that they need to have healthy relationships in a workplace context. So I think that's one area of focus around uncomfortable conversations. And then the other part where I think you made, where you made the diabetes example is that here in the U.S., you have one in four women and one in six men, one in two transgender individuals who come to the workplace as employees having experienced sexual abuse or sexual assault outside of the work zone so in some other context. And when you think about both the, the skills, the differences, the resilience, um, that that those individuals bring, but that we don't create we don't create organizations that allow for the space for those conversations and for those identities and for those survivors to kind of show up uh, in their full selves at work. We're really kind of leaving a lot of of productivity and talent on the table. So aren't we talking about corporate culture? You're saying, yes, we have rules in place. Legally, you have to have rules in place, let's say, with a lot of these organizations, profits, not. Yep. Uh, in nonprofits, but those are just the rules. But what is the real corporate culture? We have to address that. We have to have the skills to address that. Uh, and we and some companies do it better than others. Is it maybe part of this conversation? We should be talking about or give an example of a, a, a companies that do it well, that do address the issues, not just from the legal standpoint, but actually in the corporate culture. Yes, absolutely. And I think the, the typically the, com- the companies who are doing it well imagine the future that we want to live and work in, right? So if what we're thinking about is we assume that we want to have gender diverse organizations and we assume that we want people to go to work and feel 
safe, respected, and be productive. And so if that's the future that we're working towards, what are the skills that we need to get there? And so when you think about, again, kind of going back to this idea of what we want is a place where we can have healthy relationships, where we can talk about behavior and boundaries from different kinds of perspectives. And so the the underlying skills there is like, we've got to get used to talking about those things in a professional context. And when we can do that, then we can learn some harder skills that allow us, and, and by hard, I just mean not soft skills, um, some some more have practical skills that allow us to prevent and respond to sexual harassment specifically. So that might include things like bystander intervention or responding to a disclosure in a way that is both legally compliant as well as compassionate. Um, thinking about how you set and respect boundaries, which are two separate skills that sometimes get, get combined into one. Um, so those, you know, just those are some of the, a few examples. Well, can you give us, let's even get more specific, a, an example of a, a specific uncomfortable conversation, say, in the context of sexual harassment. I mean, there, you, I mean I'm thinking just you, the sexual, the Harvey Weinstein sexual yeah. harassment, then on, on one end, and then you have on the other end somebody who says, uh, you know, I like your lipstick, I like your hair, you're really right. attractive. Let's, can we address those? Yeah, different, let's, here, yeah. Let's, let's take it, let's take a scenario. So I'll, I'll take a scenario that, um, uh, that I've, I've been, that I've been workshopping when I go into the organizations to do training. So, so typically the way that I'll work a scenario is we give the scenario and then we basically unpack all of the different possibilities and conversations around the scenario. So kind of the, so let's say you, uh, you know, Jeanette, a young sales manager is joining her team to go out and and court a client for, for new business. So they're out on the road, they're traveling. And, um, and what starts to happen is that a, a senior representative from the client's company uh, is, you know, making comments about Jeanette's appearance is uh, like, you know, make, you know, buying her drinks that she hasn't asked for and has in fact said she doesn't want. And then when dinner comes, he sits down next to her and then starts putting his hand on her lower back. So this is, I mean, sort of a, a story I've heard a thousand times. Um, but when you think about it through the, you know, so oftentimes we hear a story like that and we might immediately go and identify with Jeanette, right? And so it's like, well, what is Jeanette supposed to do? What should she do in that situation? What should she say? Or we identify with the perpetrator where it's like, well, maybe he's getting mixed signals or maybe like, you know, he doesn't know that he's doing something wrong or maybe he, you know, this is, you know, who, who knows what, what they're thinking. But I think typically what we want to be doing is thinking about, well, wow, who's actually impacted by this interaction? So when you're thinking about who in the organization is impacted by this interaction and what is the impact of doing nothing or saying nothing in the moment. So if you're thinking, you know, so, I mean, I, I, I always, I can certainly kind of keep talking about it, but I'd be curious if you're thinking about it, is, is who, like who else would be impacted by this? All right, so you're asking me the question, who, well, the company is going I'm to be impacted. I'm asking you the question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In this scenario, both companies are going to be impacted. The business isn't going, you're not going to be conducting business because there's all this stuff that's in this this sense, wherever it's coming yep. from, it's bad right. for business. You're not doing business, whatever that business is, and that's who's being right. impacted, right? Right. 
So like, right. So, so Jeanette certainly is impacted, but if you think about, so let's say you do land this client and now that now you have to transition the client to work with your implementation team. So now everybody on that team is, is impacted by this person. You're thinking about, you know, the, the business that's not getting done at the table. Certainly Jeanette's not able to do her job, but I would imagine that there's probably some other colleagues at the table, you know, of both genders who are completely distracted by this person's kind of troubling behavior and not able to focus on the job at hand. So kind of when you start to think about it that way, you start to understand that there's lots of things that people could do or say in the moment, right? And so this is kind of your, you know, the the principles of bystander, interve- uh, bystander intervention is how do you start an uncomfortable conversation in an uncomfortable moment, right? Because it's, cause silence certainly is uncomfortable. The situation's making everybody uncomfortable. But when you speak up, you might feel uncomfortable saying something or, or coming up with something to say or worrying that you're going to say the right thing. But the, the price of not saying something is, is significant. And you're right. It's significant for both companies and both organizations in this context. And so, so what do you so say? You did you, start- so what do you say? Let's say you are there. You're in that. What, first of all, what should Jeanette say? And second of all, as you say, a bystander, whoever is maybe who is there. Right. What do you say? What do, yeah. Well, it, I think it's, it's even more important for the bystanders to talk up, to, to speak up, because when we, when we put the onus on Jeanette, to, I mean, so Jeanette certainly could say, take your hand off my back, right? But, you know, but imagine if the, the colleague sitting next to her says, like, hey, like, wh- you know, why are you touching her? Or, um, you know, at our, at our organization, we keep our hands to ourselves, right? So using humor is certainly, a, being direct, but using humor is one way to interrupt uh, and interrupt a troubling uh, in- interaction. And the purpose of bystander intervention is really less about intervening on the person and more about restoring safety to the environment. So the other thing that you could do is you could say, you know, you could say, hey, Jeanette, I need to talk to you about something. I, I got an emergency call from our boss. I need to talk to you, you know, over in the next room. And then you say, like, are, you know, are you okay? Do you want to switch seats with me? Right. It's, you know, like that's you're certainly stopping what's, you know, stopping what's happening. Um, you could just spill a drink on the, on the guy who's got a hand on her. And then that would require him to get up and go change his clothes or, you know, go back home. Uh, that, you know, that's uh, creating some kind of distraction is also a completely legitimate way of interrupt, of interrupting a negative or troubling behavior. So those, I mean, I think what, are just some of a, uh, some of a few examples. But what about some of the more, okay, that, that's one example, but what about some of the more subtle flirtations? You, you can feel it. Everybody yeah. knows it's happening. And yeah. So, but there isn't anything you quite can, or you feel there isn't anything you can say. There's no touching, there's, you know, nothing like that. But there are those inferences, those sexual inferences. Right. You know, how do you handle those? Well, I think part of it is talking about it ahead of time, right? So one of the things that often comes up in in conversations with employees of all genders is, is that kind of you're you're going to meet somebody for the first time, maybe kind of a a, a female colleague and a male colleague, and the person and the person greets the male colleague with a handshake and then leans in for like a kiss on the cheek and a hug for the you know for the female colleague. Though I will say that I think the recent coronavirus has changed. I was everybody's just going to say of, no one's going to be hugging, <laughs> kissing, holding hands, no. or anything. That solves no. that problem. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's not that problem. Well, let's imagine we that we will eventually get back to a place okay. where we are less panicked about about virus. Um, and yeah, and again, it's like the, you know, the, I'm sure we we can figure out ways to make people uncomfortable with our elbows too. So yeah, 
But, you know, when, you, when you're thinking about it, if, you know, you, you think about one is what can you do in that moment, but it's also what would you need to know in that moment that would, would let you know what to say or do, right? Because it's, you know, I, it's, it's some people, when I greet people, sometimes I'm fine with a kiss on the cheek and a hug, right? Like, it's, you know, I, I, that, that's fine with me. Um, I also know how to read body language and I also will ask or I'll say like, Oh, hug or handshake. I mean, I've been, I've been doing the, the, the recent thing where it's like somebody holds out their hands and I say, let's do elbows. And, and it's simply just having a conversation about how would you like to be greeted right now? And so that's like, that's a skill that everybody can learn. And if everybody does it, then it just becomes more of the norm. I also think about it as like, if I'm traveling with, you know, with the colleagues and I've worked with colleagues like this, where it's like, I, you know, I'm fine with a hug and a kiss, but that's, my, that's my right and privilege and the way that I in, interact with humans in the world. And I also feel confident in my ability to say no. I've worked with more junior colleagues who've said, I feel really uncomfortable when people touch me like that. And so now I know that and so that I can actually stand up as the person who's more senior and say, oh, she's a handshake person or she's a high five person. And, and taking responsibility for safety, safety and respect and interactions is everybody's job. And so I think it's, it's more about it's less about the interaction itself and it's more about understanding how those interactions impact different people in different ways and just standing up for people um, when you have the opportunity to do so. Sarah, what about, can you comment on the recent, you know, what happened with Bill Maher? I'm, I'm sure you're aware of that. Are you? I'm not sure. Give me the, give me the headline. Give I'll give the you headline. the scenario. It's, it's, um, yeah. he, I, I guess, and I'll have to say allegedly, but anyway, this is the story that he was, uh, in the a green room, I guess, with a, a journalist or a writer, I think she was, and he started making comments of, about, no, it wasn't Bill Maher. It was somebody else who was doing that. But Bill Maher was commenting about oh, like Chris Matthews. Yes, Chris Matthews. Excuse me. Chris Matthews okay, was the one yeah. who was making the content. Yeah. And he's commenting on her, her appearance and, and before they go on. So it, it puts her on edge. And I guess that wasn't the uh, there are other alleged situations the same yeah. way. OK, that's yeah. And then Bill Maher. That's what did a stand up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. About that situation. It was defending Chris Matthews. So uh, comment on both, you know, that whole scenario, because it fits right into what you're talking about. And because Bill Maher defended Chris Matthews. And um, so what do you? Right. Well, I mean, I think it's, you know, so so one is when, when incidents happen and then they kind of blow up in the media or in popular culture, kind of like what I like to say is like Twitter is the worst place to have a productive and meaningful conversation about sexual harassment and violence. And so, you know, so I think it's you know, to sort of to keep that in mind. It also, you know, kind of to me points to the fact that often, like, you know, we live in a world where, um, where some of these issues have become very polarized and, and we mistakenly view different you know, we, we mistakenly view topics in opposition to each other when they don't need to be in opposition to each other. So should we live in a world where people are able to consensually flirt with each other and, you know, kind of like, yes, of course, you know, we should. Is that what was happening in this situation? Apparently not. Um, should we live in a world where people are able to give feedback to each other on their behavior in a context that would allow them to to be accountable, to learn and to change and to adapt, right? Is that, you know, yes, we should also be able to give people the opportunity to do that. So it's, so I mean, like, I, you know, 
Chris Matthews is a stranger to me. Bill Maher is a stranger to me. So it's, it, yeah, it's impossible for me to know where they are on their own learning journey around how to interact, you know, how they interact with people, how they navigate consent, how they navigate boundaries in a healthy way, whether they're able to receive feedback on their behavior. So like those are all skills that I do believe anybody can learn and anybody can get better at. So that, you know, that's a different conversation than did what this particular person do have an impact in the moment? Because I think that's the other, you know, that is certainly an important conversation, which is that if you are somebody who constantly has people and professional authority make comments about your appearance, that impacts your ability to bring your full productivity and self to, to work. Um, but if, if we wait for, you know, such a long time and then are giving feedback in a way that that is perpetuating um, you know, kind of shame and stigmatization, like that's not, you know, again, that's not leading to like what we want at the end of the day is for like, for people to go to work together for, for met people of all genders to be in the green room together and to have like friendly joking conversation and then like, you know, go make good entertainment. And so, um, so if that's what we want is we have to kind of change, we have to change the way that we talk about these issues. Yeah, um, I agree. Well. I think that's important because I, I've thought about that. I mean, you're sitting there, you're about to go on air and, and the, the host makes uh, comments or is flirting with you. As you say, you have to really, I think as women, not be defensive, but just be honest and say, this is making me feel uncomfortable. It's, it's and I don't, or whatever you say, but just be honest about it so that it gets it out there without waiting till you know, later and writing an article about it or, but really just reacting in the moment and not being defensive. I think that that kind of gets into, at least I feel that women that we're always being victimized. We don't have to be victimized if we, as you say, if we develop the skills to be able to address what's happening at the moment. Yeah. And, and I think it's, and I would probably, I, I generally agree with with that perspective. I think but. it's I think it can be tricky because it's it's just if somebody is causing harm to you in the moment, it's like you know we we're human beings. We kind of we're all being react like it's like being reactive is like a human you know it's like and yes, should we work on our level of reactivity if we have the capacity to pause that re- that reaction and think about how we're going to respond? Sure, that ta- that's like a high skill activity. I think about it also from the perspective of was there anybody else in the green room who can listen for jokes or comments like that, who might not be personally impacted by them, but like might have the capacity to speak up about them. I mean, I see that dynamic all the time. Like I you know, remember kind of standing in a, you know, the conference reception talking to a group of men and, you know, I asked them kind of how the Me Too movement had changed the, the way that they talk about these issues in the world. And one of them said, well, like, well, I just don't tell, you know, there's certain jokes I don't tell in front of women anymore, kind of like making it very clear that like he still told those jokes, just not in front of women. <laughs> and so I kind of looked, I, you know, kind of looked at the other two men and, and remembered that they were also participants in this conversation. And they, they like looked very shifty, but didn't say anything. And so I kind of just like continued the conversation and ultimately circled back. And it, you know, it turned out these guys didn't think jokes like that were funny. They didn't know how to say, I don't think jokes like that are funny in the moment. And so I, th- you know, I think it's empowering the people who are, are less impacted and have more power than they think they do in those kinds of interactions to me is like where we're going to see the most change in culture. Yeah, I think, well, as uh, getting back to the uncomfortable conversations, I mean, people are uncomfortable. Yeah, you be, I mean, I've, over the years, how many of us have been in circumstances where people will say a, a terrible joke, whether it's sex, you know, sexist, racist, whatever. Racist, and you yeah. really, 
don't really know how to respond. You absolutely do not yeah. agree. You want to say something. You don't know what to say or when to right. say it. So, yeah, that those are those uncomfortable conversations. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you have to uh, practice them, right? You have to practice yeah. them before they happen because it's because it's like the first time you think about, well, what am I going to say? Like it might take you five minutes to come up with something that feels comfortable. You also have to get used to the feeling of discomfort in your body because I think what I've learned, you know, engaging in these un- uncomfortable conversations and, and teaching them is that the discomfort doesn't go away. Like it's not, I mean, I, I, you know, what I always talk about is like you, you're saying something to that, you know, man at that conference felt the same way as it did telling my mother that I had been sexually abused by a family member. Like it felt exactly the same in my body. And so I think recognizing that the discomfort isn't a reason to avoid the conversation. In fact, it's a sign you should lean into it. So uh, practice, you have to be prepared so that you don't run home, which I'm as I often done and I should have said this. I should have said that. Well, if I had been prepared, as you say, uh, then I, you know, I, I wouldn't have that kind of a regret. Well, we have to read your book, but that's one of the reasons to be prepared. I think that's true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So give us some more just like because, I mean, you're talking to people all the time about this. I still and I and getting back to the, the kind of those nuanced conversations. I mean, men and women, men and men, women and women, whoever you are attracted to tend to flirt. So how do you? Make those. It's as you say. You have to be, I guess, aware of uh, whether you're feeling uncomfortable or what this, you know, the context. But those are really difficult. I think within the work situations um, are, are really difficult. I mean, is a man or a woman or whoever be going to be afraid to compliment somebody on their looks? Be, on their yeah. I, mean, I think it depends. Right. I mean, yes. People are, people are, and, and there's research that supports this, that, it, you know, particularly in the wake of the Me Too movement is that there are people who are feeling less comfortable interacting with people of other genders as a, re, as a result of, of increased conversations about sexual harassment and, and violence in the workplace. And that's like, that's not what we want. So, so what we want is for people to feel comfortable interacting with each other. And it, and it, you know, again, it means, you know, our, so if you're thinking, gosh, well, am I, am I giving, should I give compliments? Should I not give compliments or the compliments that I give, like the right kinds of compliments is like, that's like, that is also in, like creating a level of anxiety and volatility that is, you know, that's not going to allow you to bring your full, full self to work. So I think thinking about how do you handle that? feeling and go seek feedback from people who will actually give you feedback. And so, you know, if you're thinking about, well, all right, this, I've never asked these questions out loud before. And again, it's like, you know, I do a lot of work with um, men and male identified people. So it's, it's, you know, who might not be comfortable having these kinds of conversations because of the way that they were raised or because of the way that we were, that we kind of cultured men to just not talk about relationships in the same way. And so, so thinking about, well, all right, who could I go to to get some feedback on my behavior um, who's going to be honest with me and, and then to really listen, right. And sort of to listen with a level, like without a level of defensiveness. And I, you know, and I, again, will say, you know, doing that in advance of, instead of saying, well, did that compliment I just gave you, how did that go? Was it, was it offensive or not offensive <laughs> is saying like, look, I'd love to have a conversation about compliments because I like to be able to like verbally appreciate people in the workplace. I want to make sure I'm doing it in a way that's like, that's, you know, that's, fair and that and that isn't increasing you know isn't making people uncomfortable and so if you go go and ask a bunch of people what kinds of compliments they like and then give them those kinds of compliments so the bottom line is 
you really have to have the uncomfortable conversations. We need to do that. Yeah. And yeah. And we have only, actually, we only have a minute left. So let me just mention the name of the book again, Breaking the Silence Habit, A Practical Guide to Uncomfortable Conversations in the Me Too Workplace. And we've been talking to Sarah Bolu. Sarah, give us some websites to go to, uh, website, yeah, uh, yeah, the book. And also, because I know you, you do a lot of different kinds of workshops and things like that, so. Yes, no, absolutely. So you can find out about all of the work that I do at sarahbelieu.me and I will uh, it's S-A-R-A-H B-E-A-U-L-I-E-U and the book is full of a whole bunch of practice conversations and practical tools that will help you get better at having these kinds of uncomfortable conversations. Yeah, and really practice makes perfect. I think that's great to do those kinds of role playing things because they really do work and you are prepared if you really, if you if you do that. And, and uh, so that's a good place to start with your book. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure and to be here. And this was a comfortable conversation, not an uncomfortable one. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 